If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share us and subscribe so you don't miss our next show. We'd love to talk with you again. Good morning, everyone. I hope your weekend was great and you're ready to start another week. As I sat down to go through the news over the past two days, obviously Israel and what is happening over there was the big item. This show is centered on politics, specifically United States politics, but this world event is significant. I can't just act like it's not happening and come out of the blocks today with, hey folks, look at what this senator is doing. That would be very tone deaf. I will avoid speculation. There are learned people who spend their entire scholastic and professional careers studying and trying to understand and predict what will occur in this very conflicted and complex region. I can't even wrap my head around it. Anyone who says they can, if they don't deal with it directly or have trusted family or contacts on the ground over there, is suspect. This is reported to be the worst breach of Israeli defenses since the 1973 Yom Kippur War. October 6th marked the 50th anniversary of that conflict, and it's safe to say that the timing of the most recent attack is no coincidence. In that earlier conflict, it was Egypt from the west and Syria from the east launching coordinated surprise attacks. The Israelis were caught off guard and the Arab states made early gains, but were beaten back by Israel's army and soon found themselves on the defense. Cairo was just 62 miles from the fighting near the end, and the outskirts of Damascus was taking artillery fire from the advancing IDF. The war officially ended with disengagement agreements between the three states the following year. The current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is a veteran of the IDF and of that war. He was a Special Forces team leader who participated in the rescue of hijacked Sabina Flight 571 in 1972, alongside another future Prime Minister, Ehud Barak who led the assault on the plane. The Belgian airliner, flying from Brussels to Lod via Vienna, was hijacked by four members of the Palestinian terrorist group Black September. After the hijackers took control of the aircraft, they separated the Jewish hostages from the others and upon landing demanded the release of 315 convicted Palestinian terrorists. During the successful retaking of the hijacked aircraft, Netanyahu was hit by friendly fire. Black September would later stage the famous massacre of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Newly discharged from active duty a year before, Netanyahu left his studies at Massachusetts Institute of Technology to return home and fight in the Yom Kippur War. He was involved in special forces raids along the Suez Canal against the Egyptians and then leading an attack deep into Syrian territory, the details of which are still classified. The surprise of the Yom Kippur War, despite several warnings from well-placed sources, including King Hussein of Jordan, and the initial weak performance of the Israeli Defense Forces, would ultimately bring down the government of then-Prime Minister Golda Meir. She was forced to resign, and eventually her party lost power in 1977 to a new coalition led by the Likud Party. Likud had formed in 1973 with the help of another future Prime Minister and Yom Kippur veteran credited with turning the tide in Sinai, Ariel Sharon. Future Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, fresh off his tenure as Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, returned to Israel in 1988 and joined the Likud party. During his time as ambassador, he had formed a friendship with Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father. That's not necessarily germane to this discussion, but it is interesting to note that connection. Netanyahu served his first term as Prime Minister from 1996, defeating Labor Party member Sharon Perez. Netanyahu was ousted in 1999, losing to his old team leader from the Flight 571 raid, Ehud Barak. Netanyahu returned as Prime Minister in 2009 after the resignation of the Kadima Party's Ehud Olmert on corruption charges. 
He served four terms before he too was forced out by corruption charges, ending a 12-year run. The criminal trial is still ongoing, but despite this, Netanyahu returned for his sixth term as prime minister in 2022. Beginning this year, Netanyahu's justice minister, Yariv Levin, began proposing changes to Israel's judiciary, which would strip the Supreme Court of much of its power and consolidate more of it with the Knesset, Israel's legislative body, and the prime minister. Suspect? Hmm. I know how it sounds to me. The protests that have been rocking Israel this year suggest the people there smell a rat too. This is the government that now finds itself under assault, literally on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. So what do we know so far? According to unnamed sources inside Israel's security establishment, a careful campaign of deception ensured Israel was caught off guard. Quote, Hamas gave Israel the impression that it was not ready for a fight. Major Nir Dinar, a spokesperson for the IDF, is quoted as saying, This is our 9-11. They got us. Hamas sources said they actually constructed a mock Israeli settlement in Gaza, where they trained to storm it. By active efforts to convince Israel that Hamas was focused on ensuring Gaza residents had access to jobs inside Israel, they further obfuscated their plans. Another Israeli army spokesperson confirmed it worked, stating, we believed the fact that they were coming in to work and bring money into Gaza would create a certain level of calm. We were wrong. Hamas kept their cards close to the chest, staying quiet, even while another Gaza-based group, Islamic Jihad, kept launching offensive operations as normal. It was so convincing, Hamas actually started to garner criticism from other Islamic leaders. Fatah, a West Bank group, and their president, Mahmoud Abbas, published a statement last year accusing Hamas leaders of fleeing to Arab capitals to live in luxurious hotels and villas while the people of Gaza lived in poverty. With Israel known for its effectiveness in infiltrating Islamist groups, Hamas focused on keeping the operation secret. Many leaders didn't know of the plans, and even the 1,000 fighters actively training didn't know exactly what they were training for. The first stage of what Hamas called Al-Aska Storm was a barrage of between 2,500 and 4,000 rockets fired from Gaza, while fighters flew hang gliders over the border and ran speedboats down the coast. Once on the ground, they secured the terrain so a commando unit could breach the wall that separates Gaza from Israeli settlements. Using explosives to crack the wall, the next wave was fighters on motorcycles. Bulldozers were brought in to widen the gaps in the wall so four-wheel drive vehicles could get through, according to witnesses. The Israeli army headquarters in southern Gaza was attacked by commandos, and communications jammed so the IDF could not communicate or coordinate. Sources in Israeli security say troop strength was down in that area due to redeployment to bolster the West Bank after increased violence there between Israel and Palestinian militants. The final stage of the operation was taking hostages and moving them back to Gaza. In one well-documented action, a rave near Rahim Kibbutz was raided and partygoers abducted. The rescue service Zaka said it removed 260 bodies from the site of that festival. Hamas and Islamic Jihad have claimed more than 130 hostages as a result of this invasion, seeking to trade them for thousands of Palestinians in Israeli prisons. As of this writing, preliminary reports are four Americans have been killed and seven are unaccounted for. Numbers in the media suggest 700 dead on the Israeli side and 400 in Gaza, as Israel launched attacks on more than 800 targets there. A brief exchange with Hezbollah forces launching rockets and shells from Lebanon created fear that fighting could spread across the region, but the conflict calmed down after that initial exchange. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his military apparatus may be feeling much like Golda Meir in 1973. 
Israel has formally declared war on Hamas, a largely symbolic gesture, stating the aim as the destruction of Hamas's military and government capabilities. How is this resonating in America, though? What are our elected leaders saying and, more importantly, doing? Well, first, at least two members of Congress were actually in Israel when the attack was launched. Democratic Representative Dan Goldman of New York was in the country attending a bar mitzvah with his family. As the Hamas rockets began streaming in from Gaza, he, his wife, and three youngest children sheltered in the hotel stairwell. There they stayed until they could safely return to the United States Sunday with the help of the State Department and Israeli authorities. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat for New Jersey, was in Israel for an economic summit, meetings, and site visits. When the attack began, he was jogging through Old Jerusalem when he received a call from his chief of staff telling him to get back to the hotel as quickly as he could. He did so and joined others in the hotel's bomb shelter until he could leave Sunday. It seems our first politician has spoken through action, or inaction, depending on your feelings on the issues. Senator Tommy Tuberville, facing renewed calls from Democrats to end his blockade of military senior officer nominations in light of the attack on Israel, has refused. He will not back down until the Pentagon revokes its policy of funding service members' travel across state lines to get abortions. The United States finds itself without a chief of naval operations, even as the USS Gerald Ford Carrier Strike Group speeds to the eastern Mediterranean to assist United States ally Israel in their time of crisis. Biden appointees for the chief of staff for the Navy, Admiral Lisa Franchetti, and the Air Force, General David Alvin, are waiting Senate confirmation. Senate Armed Services Committee Chair Jack Reed said, The severity of the crisis in Israel underscores the foolishness of Senator Tuberville's blockade. The Rhode Island Democrat added, This is no time for political theater, and I again urge Republican colleagues to help actively end Senator Tuberville's damaging blockade. A fair accusation, but the vacancies for the Army, the Marine Corps, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were pushed through recently with independent votes on the eve of the deadline for action on the federal budget, also being held up by congressional intrigue. Certainly these key positions could, similarly, be addressed in independent votes. Doing so for all 300 or so nominees is definitely untenable, but at these levels it could be argued that this game of chicken needs to stop. If that means blinking again while Tuberville does his best impersonation of a cork to get the things done on at least these two appointments, the Democrats would show that they take this as seriously as they say they do. Coach Tuberville has already shown he's not budging. Chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Democratic Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland, has stated he intends to put forward legislation to provide, quote, Israel what it needs to defend itself. That would include munitions for Israel's Iron Dome anti-missile defense system and supplemental funding. Any efforts to get anything through the House, though, are hampered by the recent ouster of the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. The ongoing maneuvering continues as the two most likely candidates, Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, House Freedom Caucus co-chair, and Majority Leader Louisiana Steve Scalise attempt to line up support. Republicans will be in conference from today and are expected to listen to the two lawmakers' elevator pitches this week on why they should be given the gavel. President Biden proclaimed his support for Israel, while some Republicans blamed him for this, citing his recent release of $6 billion of frozen Iranian money in exchange for five U.S. citizens Iran was holding. Reports are that money, the money is still sitting in a bank in Qatar and that it can only be used for humanitarian-related purposes. Republican primary presidential candidates weighed in on the situation as well, with Donald Trump falsely claiming, quote, American taxpayer dollars help fund these attacks. The money in question was actually Iranian money from oil sales that had been frozen, not taxpayer money. You decide what you think about Trump's statement. 
Vivek Ramaswamy also suggested American taxpayer dollars were funding Iran and by relation Hamas. He spent the weekend touring the Canadian border, spinning the Israel attack into a border security one for the United States, repeating the call to, quote, build the wall. Israel had a wall, a very serious wall. Walls are not impenetrable, as you have stated correctly on the campaign trail repeatedly, Vivek. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis accused President Biden of, quote, sleeping on the job. This assertion is based on Biden saying, I got up this morning, started this at 7.30, 8 a.m., my calls. The attacks commenced at 6.30 a.m. in Israel, 11.30 p.m. in Washington. It's unclear if President Biden was already working on the issue before his, quote, calls, but it gave critics an opening and DeSantis took it. Watch out, Ron. Former Vice President Mike Pence blames not only President Joe Biden, but former President Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and you for the attack. He stated that, quote, this is what happens when we have leading voices like Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis signaling retreat from America's role as the leader of the free world. He is likely referencing those candidates' desire to stop funding Ukraine's defense against the Russian invasion. Both are a stance you can take. Where do you come down on that issue? Chris Christie voiced support for Israel that were he president, he would be engaged with, quote, allies in the region such as Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Speaking to the recent drama in the House, he called out some in his own party. Quote, the actions taken by some members of my party are wholly irresponsible without this going on. He added, they're now even putting a brighter light on the irresponsibility of not having someone in place, meaning the Speaker of the House. Tim Scott similarly blamed Biden's policies for this attack, citing the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan and Biden's comments on Russia's actions in Ukraine. The release of $6 billion in frozen Iranian oil sales was also a point of contention, where Scott suggested they inadvertently contributed to Hamas's activities. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley had perhaps the spiciest comment, frosting the standard support Israel comments with a tweet in X? I know the new name. What's the new verb? Anyway, she said, this is not just an attack on Israel. This was an attack on America. Finish them at Netanyahu. They should have hell to pay for what they've just done. Finish them. Strong words. That's two former United Nations ambassadors, folks. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave a comment here and on Podchaser. It helps us know how we're doing and what topics you'd like to hear in the future. Have a great day.